You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 28th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. No one can question your effort, but your coordinated and well-funded effort to destroy my good name and destroy my family will not drive me out. Worth a try, though. My guests Carlotta Ribello, Marco Sippi, Ed Stocker and Thomas Lewis will be discussing the Kavanaugh confirmation and the day's other top stories, including Australia's national broadcaster goes into circular firing squad mode, the revelation of the nation richest in human capital, and... Hi there, Bert. Oh, hi, Ernie. Hey, Bert, you want to play a game? Mm, no, I'm, I'm reading right now, Ernie. The truth at last about Bert and Ernie. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. Welcome to Midori House. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests today are Monocle 24's Marcus Hippie and Carlotta Ribello and our Toronto Bureau Chief Thomas Lewis and our America's Editor-at-Large Ed Stocker. Welcome all to the show. We will start in the United States and the least dignified week in its politics since at least last week. As we go to air, the Senate Judiciary Committee was preparing to vote on whether or not to allow the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the US Supreme Court to proceed to a full Senate vote. This follows yesterday's testimony to the committee by by Christine Blasey Ford, who accused Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her when both of them were teenagers, and Kavanaugh's subsequent denial. Um, Carlotta, first of all, is there any argument you can see at this point in favour of confirming Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court? Uh, no, uh, to put it simply. And even today, when um, uh, the Senate hearing started, and um, I, think, I believe it was Senator Whitehouse um, that even said that just by looking at back to yesterday's hearing, uh, Brett Kavanaugh's hearing, the way he became so emotional, was so partisan, and the words that he used, if anything, just showed how he probably cannot be an impartial judge in one of the most, what is the most important uh, court of the land. This is the argument that even if the accusations against him don't disqualify him, his behaviour in defending himself does disqualify him. Exactly, because the the arguments he used uh, last last night um, uh, in his hearing, while we had seen, it was a stark stark contrast to those of Dr. Ford, who was, you know, calm, was very precise in her arguments, uh, the fact that she was even apologetic of the whole, uh, the way everything was unfolding. And then you fast forward to this man that is shouting, uh, is emotional, but not in a good way, uh, is talking about the fact that this is a Democrat uh, a ploy to not getting him confirmed. It just shows that if he gets true, he won't be an impartial judge. So even if you ignore uh, the allegations, that it must be said that it's not just from Dr. Ford. Other women have come out so. with similar allegations. Um, the way he presented his arguments, I wouldn't trust him to... If I had a case, like, and he was the judge, I knew I would be screwed. Um, Ed, this, when I say it will, this already has turned into a shrieking partisan bond fight, the same that absolute way that absolutely everything in America now does. Yeah. Do you get the sense that yesterday in particular, that testimony we heard from Christine Blasey Ford, which, as Carlotta said, was extremely calm, methodical and precise, uh, followed by Kavanaugh's reaction, which was none of those things... 
is this did it strike you as a moment? Is this something that is going to be remembered as significant, or is this going to be yet another thing? And there've been so many of them during this administration, which seem to uh, block out the sun for twenty four hours, and then a week later, nobody can quite remember what it was. No, I mean, I think it will be remembered as being significant. And I think the next few hours are particularly significant. I mean, it really depends on how, you know, the vote goes. If he ends up being confirmed, I mean, that could, you know, potentially be highly scandalous and won't go any way to solving you know, what has become such a highly polarised Washington. I mean, certainly true. I mean, uh, Carlotta was saying about how, you know, she believes what he was saying, he couldn't be trusted as a judge. But I think, you know, putting that aside, I think both sides are so highly polarised. Both sides seem to be trying to, you know, make political gain from this situation. Both sides seem so entrenched in their belief or their view, their take on the facts, that it, it just... It, it's just, you know, in my short lifespan, as it were, in the US, which is only four years, I just, you know, it's never been like this. This has just got to such highly toxic levels. I, actually, Ted Cruz, who uh, doesn't often say something you particularly like to listen to, was talking today about how each side sees their reality, as it were, through a lens. And that's completely true. It's just two entrenched sides uh, seeing it from, you know, their view. And I just don't know how that's ever going to be resolved. Looking, you know, regardless of this, just in the future, Washington politics, it's so such a, a dirty game these days, really. Uh, I don't remember now which of the senators um, today said that. Um, I want to say it was Feinstein, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, that what was clear before the hearings yesterday was how so many of the Republican senators had made up their mind before the hearings even started. How can you then just... This is American politics all over right yes, now, though. Yes, and it's like, how can you then say that this is due process? No, this is just doing the bare minimum to, in the future, cover... And any uh, any way that the history books might reflect badly on you. It seems odd that you can jump to any conclusion based on this, regardless of your political allegiance, yeah. and not need a further probe from, say, the FBI. Uh, I will bring in at this point the disembodied voice of Thomas Lewis from our Toronto Bureau. Um, Thomas, this isn't the first time that we've seen the Republican Party act like it's forgotten that American women are allowed to vote, and indeed have been uh, for quite some time. Um, do you think the Republicans have always been as strange as they now appear to be about women, or is, is, is this something relatively new? They, it's something that they're grappling with in a very real way. Obviously, anyone who's watching the, the hearings yesterday will have seen that they hired a, a, an attorney, a, a woman, to question Dr. Blasey Ford on their behalf. Um, that was widely sort of kind of welcomed by many, kind of regarded as sort of, you know, pretty political in its way by others. The politics sort of fell apart, though, pretty quickly when uh, Judge Kavanaugh came into the room and it it, you know, the, the job of asking questions returned to the all white male kind of Republican section of the Judiciary Committee. So it looked like that, you know, once the sort of formality, as you might be able to describe it, of, you know, 
giving Dr. Blasey Ford a fair hearing, being sort of gentle and fair and measured with her, well, as soon as she was out of the room, it's the old boys club again, coming back and standing up for one of their own. I think that it's surprising that they let the kind of optics of that kind of slip through so easily, I think, because, you know, as Ed said a moment ago, kind of whatever way this goes, and there is a growing feeling, I think, that Kavanaugh will be uh, will be approved even by a whistle. Uh, that actually, you know, the the damage will have been done, I think. And, you know, equally, if he doesn't get approved, if the, say, four to five sort of senators that the the pressure is piling up on to see what they'll do, you know, the, the fallout from that will be equally huge also, I think, you know, it's it's a bit of history repeating, as you say, Andrew, and I think, you know, whatever way this goes, perhaps that will actually give the lessons to the Republicans to see how they can be more constructive in this area in the years to come, and especially with the midterms around the corner. OK, well, let's look now at Australia, where a row involving the national government and the national broadcaster has hopefully illuminated enough universal truths about the relationship between national governments and national broadcasters to keep us all going for six or seven minutes. The chair of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Justin Milne, resigned after it emerged that he'd lent on managing director Michelle Guthrie to sack two senior journalists whose reporting had displeased the government. Ms Guthrie was herself sacked earlier in the week. Um, it, it is all very strange. Uh, my, as, speaking as the token Australian at this table, I think what's going on here is that Australia's government, or Australia's government, has realised that it's probably at least six weeks before they can think about knifing another Prime Minister. So instead... Uh, we're having an argument between the government and the public broadcaster or amid the public broadcaster. Um, I did, I'll start by asking you, Marcus, because um, we want to talk about what the ideal relationship between these two entities is. Do, do you go much in for this sort of thing in Finland? Absolutely. Actually, I was just going to point out that these kind of stories are not that unique. Just what, a couple of years ago, there was actually a similar case in Finland between a row between the government and the national public broadcaster. So Finland got rid of TV license fees some years ago. As a result, they're getting tax money, obviously controlled by the government. And the head of the Finnish television and radio news started getting emails from the Finnish prime minister going on about <clears throat> what the hell are you doing with this news? And I'm opposing this news story. You should be doing this and this and this. And it's actually quite a sad path that actually what happened after that so <clears throat> there was a lot of criticism amongst journalists working for the company that the new line of the Finnish broadcasting company News was way too gentle towards the government. They knew that there was a lot of pressure coming from the government and they knew that the editor-in-chief of the news was in quite close relationship with the prime minister. And as a result... This whole case made news. People started losing their faith in the news, considering that there were reports that many of the stories the Finnish public broadcaster was supposed to release in the end were shelved and not released just because they were so worried about declining relations and they were worried that something would go wrong with the government and that the government would somehow, somehow revenge for critical broadcasting. So... All these lessons learned from that, I think we shouldn't even talk about a relationship really between government and a public broadcast. So they should be as far away from each other as possible. Well, it's when it's when it stops being a public broadcaster and starts being a state broadcaster. When there's that government involvement, uh, I think that's that for me is the key uh, difference and why it is so crucial that you don't get whoever prime ministers, ministers, political aides, doesn't matter, anyone involved in government 
commenting, suggesting or um, opinionating on uh, who should work at at that station and what story should be or not covered. Exactly. And in the long run, the editor-in-chief of the Finnish Public Broadcaster News had to resign after a row that lasted for months and months only because the public belief, the trust towards the broadcaster had to be restored and there was no really other way. So if we look at this case about what's going on in Australia, I think this whole thing should be just gone through really carefully, like the public should really find out what actually has been going on behind the scenes. I don't think we know that well enough at the moment. See, I, I come at stories like this from the opposite perspective, I guess, uh, reflecting or amplifying what Carlotta was saying. I, I, I think when there's a massive row between the national government and the national broadcaster, that's usually quite a good sign. I think if you live in a country where the national broadcaster and the national government are not having a massive row, there's, you've probably got a problem. Um, Thomas, in, in Toronto, does, does, does this go on in Canada, even in the famously placid and polite modes of discourse for which the Canadians are justly famous? Well, the the CBC, the national broadcaster here, is, you know, a jewel for many Canadians and does sit on a bit of a pedestal. Uh, Justin Trudeau's predecessor, Stephen Harper, uh, who governed for nearly 10 years, he was voted out in 2015, um, he made it no small priority to sort of hollow out effectively the CBC and to cut budgets, uh, the sort of fatal blow in many ways to many people was when the CBC lost the rights to hold host the uh, Hockey Night in Canada broadcasts, which are still the most watched broadcasts in the country. And that was really seen as kind of the CBC being on the ropes. Uh, and Trudeau has tried to rectify that. There's been a, an injection of new funds, which, you know, hasn't been this sort of, you know, silver bullet or anything, but has definitely kind of, I think, restored a lot of people's sense that, you know, the CBC is something worth protecting and is something worth you know holding the government account through too i think one thing i would note that print media in canada is really in a very very precarious position to speak broadly we've seen scores of local and city papers shut over the last year we had a quite a dramatic statement from the toronto star which is one of the biggest newspapers in the country earlier in the spring saying that that paper was on the verge of collapse now the government here has tried to sort of help in that score they've set up a fund um, that that can that will offer sort of supporting funds if those newspapers show that they're diversifying their business models. The problem there is, and the question that's been raised here is, well, is that government, you know, involvement in too sort of direct a way? So it is very much a live conversation, maybe in a different forum of the media here, uh, that is still very much ongoing. Um, Ed, it's uh, here in the UK, obviously, such spats are not unusual either. And I, I, there is that common wisdom, which you often hear quoted, certainly informally, by BBC staff that generally if, if both the government and the opposition are angry with them they're pretty confident they're doing something right is that is that a reasonable metric do you think uh, I guess so I mean you don't want <laughs> you don't want governments to be too happy with what you're doing like you said earlier because obviously that means you're perhaps not holding uh, politicians and those in positions of power to enough accountability so um I think it's certainly extremely important to both maintain that distance and obviously continue to, uh, you know, put politicians and those in positions of importance under, you know, under a microscope and really keep fighting uh, against injustice. So I think uh, Australia is a point, you know, is a, it really shows that, you know, government and broadcaster getting too close together can be dangerous for, the, for those sorts of processes.
Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Thomas Lewis, Ed Stocker, Marcus Hippie and Carlotta Ribello. Coming up next, how to value a nation's people and that truth at last about Bert and Ernie. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Carlotta Ribello, Ed Stocker, Marcus Hippie and Thomas Lewis. And let's look now at Finland, a country which features highly on most indexes of chronic, which chronicle living standards, despite only having about six days a year you can go outside without a balaclava and a torch. The latest chart it tops is one published this week in The Lancet, measuring what is called human capital, a measurement of the level of education and health in a population, which is an obvious enough determinant of economic growth. The World Bank will issue its own Human Capital Index next month. Um, Marcus, as an exemplar of Finland's rich human capital, um, mm-hmm. I, I was intrigued to notice that the figures in the land quoted in the Lancet, which are for 2016, they have in the first three places Finland, Iceland, and Denmark. Uh, it was exactly the same in 1990. What is it about the Scandinavian countries? Because it sure as heck isn't the weather. I know it is not the weather, but then again, it may be the weather, considering, as you mentioned, you know, sometimes the weather is just so bad that you have to stay inside and, you know, you can actually revise and learn something about the world. I actually spent that quick break we had between this discussion and the previous one writing down some factors that may be contributing to the Finnish performance. And it's, it's quite a long list of various things. What I've, exactly. So, so one of them is equality. So people pay a lot of taxes that generates a lot of resources that you can invest, say, in public health healthcare or education. At the same time, that creates the feeling also that everyone is in the same boat. So, you know, we think that that society is equal and offers the same opportunities to everyone. Then another thing is that, as I mentioned, there's a lot of resources for education. People appreciate the education as well. Finland has actually, if you've been looking at, say, the reader figures for newspapers, Finland has always been leading in those numbers as well. Then maybe something more specifically for the Nordic region, there is some kind of a trust for authorities. That's something that's been noticed when people have been wondering what it is about the Finnish education, for example, that makes, you know, such a good product. And it, it, it's something about the Finnish mentality that you don't actually always question people or tell you to do things. So, for example, teachers are saying that Finnish kids may actually be a little bit easier to handle than kids in, in many other countries. And obviously, if we look at the health aspect, also... The nature is there. All these cities and towns are relatively small and there's great parks, there's there's water, you can go skiing, you can do all that stuff. There's loads of opportunities to actually just do something healthy. And finally, because it's all these countries are relatively rich societies and there's good benefits also for those people who are not earning well, you can actually eat pretty well. 
you know, you don't, you're not like, if, for example, in the UK, I see all these overweight children running around just eating chips. And I'm always thinking about that. You know, <laughs> this is something that I don't see in my home country. And I'm always slightly terrified by that. Uh, Ed, in those, between those, t- those same indexes, between 1990 and 2016, the US dropped from 6th to 27th. I know you've only been there for four years, but would you, would you care to take a stab at where it's all going wrong for the United States? Is it not being enough like Finland? <laughs> I think from what Marcus said, more countries need to be like Finland. I think, uh, I mean, obviously, there's certain areas that the US hasn't improved in. Uh, you can argue that, you know, the US doesn't uh, rate that highly in terms of quality of life. If you are a reader of Monocle magazine, you may notice that American cities don't often rank up there. They do not. Um, but it's also things like, uh, you know, one thing that this study uh, also earmarks as a pretty important factor is educational atta- attainment. And, you know, obviously there are grave problems within, uh, well, arguably within the U.S. education system, not just at, you know, secondary level, but also, uh, you know, at the at, at the higher education level as well, and with Betsy DeVos uh, sort of marshalling education as well, um, uh, those are not likely to necessarily improve. So I think uh, those sorts of factors, uh, you know, it can arguably start at that level, at an educational level. If uh, if if they're not things improving there, it can affect uh, a much wider set of issues. So I think that has a large part to do with it, according to the study. Uh, Carlotta, I could not help but notice that Australia is in 26th place, Portugal, a feeble 40th. Um, What is it you think that Portugal still needs to do to to become as good as Australia? Oh, as good as Australia. That's where, well, I mean, we do have a lot of sunshine, so we're good on that end. No, I think um, with Portugal, um, it has to do as well with what I just uh, talked about, with education. Uh, The Portuguese educational system used to be really good up until the 90s and ever since it's just been in decline. Are you doing that thing where you say it was all fantastic until you left school and since then it's been all downhill? Andrew, I didn't leave school in the 90s. (laughs) 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 Sorry to break it to you. Everybody had left school by then. Um, No, but uh, since... Portugal is very simple. Um, we had a dictatorship up until 74. After that, well, freedom, money for everything, finally. And then realized, actually, we can't really overspend. And education took the biggest hit and has been uh, ever since. And we can't really compare. Like, even when I was in school, which, you know, it wasn't in the 90s, it was way closer to, to now. Uh, I can tell the difference to the program today. And I think it's massively what contributes to Portugal's performance on this um on this rating and also uh, health, the health system, which it's it's a public health system. We we don't have uh, private health care as uh, the standard and the norm, which is great. But still, it, there's a lot of areas where it could improve. Uh, Thomas in Canada, uh, your home country, the United Kingdom, ranks 31st. Canada ranks 11th. Um, what do you think Canada still needs to do to sort of make up those 10 places on Finland? I think, you know, lots of the, the touch points that, that Marcus discussed for Finland, I think sort of ring true for Canada as well. Obviously, Canada geographically is um, absolutely enormous. I think you'll have to sort of check me on this, but I think geographically it's the, the largest country in the world. And I think as such, you know, and the population does not match that. I think we're about a population of about 35 million. Again, someone should fact check that. But I think, you know, when you look at sort of the, the, the quality of life in terms of being outdoors, 
stores um, in terms of sort of, you know, food and drink and the way that kind of sort of um, filters into sort of people's daily routines, that being outside, if you're on the sort of the Pacific coast or if you're here in Ontario or if you're in sort of the mountains of, of Quebec, you know, there's a real huge variety. And from a very young age, you know, the hockey, for example, kind of that sort of sewn into most children kind of going out on a lake or some impromptu kind of rink somewhere. Um, you know, I think Canada is growing incredibly quickly and the the diversity of the population is changing incredibly quickly too. So I wonder how that will sort of impact actually the way the notions of quality of life as sort of characterised in this ranking um, kind of change over the years to come because I think, you know, Canada likes to build itself as a collaborative place that does take influences from those people who move here to call it home. Uh, so I think it's a sort of a, a moving picture, but quite sort of a, a positive one, really. Well, finally tonight, a resolution of sorts to a hardy perennial of online discourse, the relationship status of Sesame Street characters Bert and Ernie. Last week, former Sesame Street writer Mark Saltzman reignited the debate by stating that he always wrote Bert and Ernie as a loving couple. The Sesame Workshop countered that, as puppets, Bert and Ernie did not have a sexual orientation, but were, quote, created to teach preschoolers that people can be good friends with those who are very different from themselves, especially if they've got differently shaped heads, for example. <laughs> Earlier today, however, Chief Muppet Master Frank Oz tweeted that if Jim, by whom he means Jim Henson, and I had created Bert and Ernie as gay characters, they would be inauthentic, coming from two straight men. However, I have now learned that many view them as represent representative rather of a loving gay relationship, and that's pretty wonderful. Thanks for helping me understand. Um, Marcus, as a, as a public statement there from Frank Oz, it struck me he's got it pretty much right, hasn't he? That's a sort of humbling and accepting and you know, reasonable thing to say. I think it's definitely a good development. I, I agree with many aspects of that. But still, I, I don't know, this whole this whole saga has been so weird. Why was it so hard to at, like just understand that people may have different perspe- perceptions about these characters and they could be anything people want them to see, like anything people want them to be? Also, he's saying that that they wouldn't be, gay characters would not be, authentic coming from two straight men. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that that comment yeah, over there. It's, it strikes a bit weird. It's, it sounds same, a bit weird over there. That's the same thing when you have um, people criticising uh, gay uh, actors for playing straight men on screen or vice versa. It's like, it doesn't really matter, does it? It shouldn't matter. Um, but... Uh, I just think like what was wrong with this whole story from the start was exactly what Marcus was saying, just the the dismissal of how it could be interpreted in a different way. And if they had acknowledged immediately saying, all right, we didn't write it with that in mind, but we but do. That's fine. But that's but, fine. But we can see why it wouldn't even would... have become a story. Yeah, it should be. It should be whatever anyone wants it to be. It's not like these are sexualized characters anyway. Exactly. Let's face it. So except that Ed, they they have become weirdly gay icons, Bert and Ernie, famously on the cover that lovely New Yorker cover after the legalization of, of same sex marriage uh, in the United States, which depicted Bert and Ernie as a sort mm. of you know content domestic couple watching sure, television. Sure, but I, I still wouldn't argue it's sexualized. It, I yeah, mean, you can exactly. argue it's about love and it's about companionship and whatever. And it was used for that. It wasn't necessarily sexualized. I agree with that. Yeah. Do you know, they're slightly different things. I just think, uh, I think it's been overblown. People should be allowed to interpret it however they want and enjoy it however 
however they want without it being but, but, but clearly, but clearly and... the original statement that that puppets being puppets don't have a sexual orientation was massively disingenuous wasn't it because there oh. is of course the the famous if somewhat dysfunctional romance between kermit and miss piggy true <laughs> definitely true I think I think people should have freedoms. For example, I wouldn't want to hear anything about the real relationship status between Batman and Robin. I think we should all have. <laughs> we should all that's have the freedom. That's a topic for another Midori <laughs> house, right? That's a, that's a whole. I think, whole I think other, we all should have the freedom to like you know, believe what we want to believe. You just take it to another extreme. What do you want to believe, Marcus? <laughs> that is a good question, Marcus. What do you want to believe about I, Batman I, and Robin? I think Batman, as a, as a concept, needs a bit of spicing up. So I let you draw your own conclusions from that. <laughs> okay, uh, Thomas. Very quickly in Toronto, is the, is the Bert and Ernie debate one that has consumed the, the, the saloons and hockey rinks of Canada? Oh, absolutely. There's been no other talking point in town. Um, I think in terms of just changing perceptions, I'm sure many of us remember just how toxic an idea, for example, the Teletubbies became when it was suggested, suggested that Tinky Winky, who was coloured purple and had a red handbag, uh, could be gay and the kind of awful, awful, you know, sort of influence that would have on the young children of America and the UK and beyond and you know I think that's kind of a laughable idea now that that would be a negative connotation to have such a popular character representing whatever corner of society you want it to represent I've always preferred Lala (laughs) (laughs) Just a final thought on this one Uh, Carlotta can can you become a gay icon accidentally? Yes Well clearly Burton only has It's all about what people what message you tra- transpire to other people and how they view you be you mm. a person a song a cartoon it doesn't matter that's the same yeah. thing as saying I wrote this song about one thing but I feel it differently like it doesn't matter you can accidentally become an icon and that's a good thing I think it would be amazing if Andrew Muller accidentally became a gay icon <laughs> maybe he will after this show I don't well, think exactly. it's accidentally exactly the, 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 the evening is young um, that does bring us to the end uh, of today's show and now that it's official we can of course wish Bert and Ernie every happiness Marcus Hippie Carlotta Rabello, Thomas Lewis and Ed Stocker thanks for joining us at Midori House the show was produced by Ben Ryland researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Helena Gerrit our studio manager was Christy Evans music next at tw- 1900 Marcus is back with food and drink on the menu. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'll be your host for that as well. Until then, I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend.